Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the Scanner studio today is Brian Hicks, who is a columnist for the Post and Courier. And he has written a biography of Joe Riley, the recently retired mayor of the city of Charleston, and it's called The Mayor, Joe Riley and the Rise of Charleston. And first of all, Brian, welcome back to the journal. Well, thank you for having me, Walter. As you mentioned in your introduction, and as Pat Conroy does in his preface, this isn't just the story of Joe Riley. It's really a story of the city. If I were choosing a subtitle, and you know all authors have got to have a subtitle, I would have said from America's Best Kept Secret to America's number one tourist destination because that's what happened in that 40-year period. That is a pretty good point. And it is largely due to the vision of the man who held the office for 40 years. Yeah, it is. Um, I spoke recently in uh, Somerville. And do you know that today Somerville is almost exactly the same size that Charleston was when Joe Riley took office? So I told them, I said, if you don't want to grow anymore, don't elect Joe Riley mayor. <laughs> well, given the battles over the years with the folks on James Island, what have you, and North Charleston, Charleston may have grown geographically about as much as it can. I think it's I think it's about uh, tapped out now. It's uh, I think it's bumping into stuff in every direction. Okay. All right, Brian, let's back up a minute and let's let's talk a little bit about you. You are very soft-spoken, but having been a pretty regular reader of your, of your columns in the Post and Courier, I would say that uh, you have a fairly sharp pen, not as sarcastic as H.L. Mencken was in his day, but you, you kind of skewer folks and things that need to be skewered. How did you get to Charleston, and how did you kind of develop this journalistic style? Well, I came to Charleston nearly 20 years ago to work for the Post and Courier, and I had been a uh, a state house reporter in Georgia and Tennessee before this, and uh, oddly enough, when I came here, they promised me I never have to write about politics again. <laughs> and within two months, I was uh, on the campaign trail with Fritz Hollings in his last campaign, and um, then it was up to the South Carolina legislature. I think after all those years of following politicians around. And having to report without any editorial commentary, some of the baloney that they say, excluding Fritz, I love Fritz. Um, I, I really just wanted to say, here's what I think, and uh, here's what's really going on. Here's what they're doing. And the Post and Courier gave you that opportunity to do so. Um, reluctantly at first, yes. Um, well, you did step on some toes with some of your early columns. Yeah, well, I've been I've been making people mad. Luckily, uh, we're a privately owned newspaper, and I think most of the family likes me pretty well, so I feel like I'm safe. <laughs> well, one thing we didn't get is, where are you from originally? I'm from East Tennessee around Chattanooga. Oh, okay. Okay, home of the mood pie. Yes. You've been doing books for a while in addition to your columns. How many have you done since you've been in South Carolina? Uh, I've written eight books, all of them since I've been here. Okay. And topics, are they from your columns or? No. Um, the first book I did, I co-authored with a, with Tony Bartlemy, a colleague of mine at the paper, covering um, this sailboat race, single-handed sailboat race around the world, which was kind of an adventure story. And uh, I wrote a book about the Hunley Okay. with my uh, colleague, Skylar Croft, that uh, Random House brought out in 2002. And uh, because I can't get enough of it, uh, my last book before the mayor was actually another book about the Hunley. I think I've about tapped out on that one. Okay, let's get into the, the subject of the mayor, Joe Riley and the rise of Charleston. And we can either start at the beginning when this young 32-year-old guy, he's had three terms in the General Assembly, not particularly successful, if you're honest about it. I mean, he made some stands, but he didn't really get anywhere. And in those days, Solomon Blot was still Speaker of the House, whether it was on the Martin Luther King holiday or ethics or what have you. When, when I read some of those those early accounts, I, I thought, you know, Joe's swinging in a pinata. I mean, he just, and he's missing. <laughs> he's just, knowing how the House, I'm surprised that as good a politician as he is, 
he didn't understand, for example, that he wasn't going to beat Bobby Nice to be chairman of the Judiciary Committee. Well, he was, you know, in his 20s, which uh, seems very, very young to me these days, idealistic. And I actually, I, I start chapter one of the book with him in the legislature, standing up to Saul Blot and the power structure. And he's, you know, he's been in elected office for three months and he's, uh, he's 26 years old and he's trying to stand there and tell Saul Blot, you're wrong. Yeah. It could either be very brave or very brazen, depending upon your point of view. Yes, it could. I, I thought in that case it was pretty brave. He got more brazen as time went on to the point that he was campaigning against Saul Blot for speaker. We're talking about the Rex Carter attempt to unseat Saul Blot. Yes. Uh, that really would have succeeded had Carter stayed the course. He really had it sewed up. In retrospect, we know that. He had he had the votes, and at the last minute, he backed off, and it was kind of arranged that he would, you know, let Saul serve that, you know, serve out that next term, and then he would take over. But they had the votes to get rid of him. And, of course, a lot of those folks who campaigned for Carter were left hanging out to dry. They all got put on the invitations committee just about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were some people pretty mad at him, I remember. Yeah. Well, Joe wasn't the only young Turk, and, and there were a group of young folks who gloried in the name young Turk. Alex Sanders, Gene Toll, and the, Arnie Goodstein in the House about the same time. Gene came in at the tail end of Joe's term, and Arnold came in, I think, during his second term. And Alex had been there. Mm -hmm. Alex was all of 29 and was already, you know, a raconteur extraordinaire in the state house. <laughs> so you've got this young, energetic, idealistic representative from Charleston, which seems kind of counterintuitive since most people consider Charleston to be ultra-conservative. So let's talk about Joe Riley's background, Irish Catholic. Irish Catholic, uh, a family of doers in public service, everything. Mm -hmm. His father is uh, probably Mendel Rivers' best friend. Mendel Rivers was the longtime congressman from the 1st District, Charleston. Probably one of the most successful bring-home-the-bacon politicians the country has ever produced. At one point, he was chairman of the, of the House Armed Services Committee. The comment was made by a fellow congressman from Georgia. Mendel, if you put one more tank in Charleston, it's going to sink. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the part of the Charleston story which changes during Joe Riley's term. But okay, we've got Joe Seniors, or Big Joe as they called him. Big Joe. Uh, a, a man who he tried to buy the Isle of Palms before it was developed and lost out to J.C. Long. But uh, Joe, um, the mayor grew up in Big Joe's house, and they had Fritz Hollins and Jimmy Burns, all these governors and Mendel Rivers. We had all these politicians, and he just grew up around this stuff and uh, lived this pretty idyllic life on the peninsula of Charleston. And actually, he did live south of Broad. Yes, he did. Yeah. For folks who are not from Charleston, living south of Broad has a certain cachet politically, socially, and everything else. Yes. He, uh, he was there from the time he was two on. Yeah. Well, this young guy just out of law school gets elected. Today we're all con you know, confronted and I would say confounded uh, with single-member districts. In those days, county delegations were elected countywide. And if Charleston had X number of seats in the House, everybody ran. And the top, I think it was 10 Charleston had at that time, went to Columbia. Yeah. Joe, from, from the start, was one of the top vote-getters even his first time. And um, on his first bid for re-election in 1970, a lot of people thought he was going to be the top vote-getter in the county, which is how they chose delegation chairman at that point. And instead, he gave his money to Jim Clyburn and Herbert Fielding, hoping to get African-Americans elected to the legislature for the first time since Reconstruction. He serves three terms. He's very conscientious, but he's a newlywed, soon, yeah. soon to be a father. And so he's commuting back and forth. And this is part of the, of the story as well. 
Yeah, his 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 wife Charlotte was not real happy about him being gone half the week for half the year, and she's she's got one young son that's born during his first session, and by the early seventies they have a second son on the way, and um, I think he'd promised her there was a time limit on it, and he comes home and he he says I'm not going to run again. He announces it's the end of the session in seventy four. And um, he quits, says, I'm through with politics. I'll just, you know, maybe I'll serve on some committees or something. And uh, within a few months, he's running for mayor. That kitchen cabinet of his, which includes people like uh, Tom Tisdall and and others, interesting group of young Broad Street lawyers, because he does establish a, a law practice, brings in his old friend to be his partner. The office rent was good because Daddy let him have a second-floor office above his real estate company. Yeah, a building that's still there. Yeah. Didn't have a bathroom, but the rent was right. <laughs> yeah, the rent, the, the rent was right. But it's interesting that people began to talk about him, although the then-mayor, Palmer Gilliard, he didn't exactly anoint Joe, but he had mentioned Joe several times because of some of the things Joe had been doing in public that would have an impact on Charleston, particularly with the African-American community. Palmer seemed to, he did he did all but endorse him and anoint him he spoke about him when he um when he announced that he was uh, retiring mm-hmm. which was a big surprise they asked him who he thought should be mayor he said well I don't know I'm not going to say that but but that kid Joe Riley's pretty good <laughs> of course one of the reasons that Mr. Gilliard was retiring because he'd had a very close race and the African-American community had become disaffected with him because of the various strikes going on in Charleston. Both of those strikes, the hospital workers and the garbage worker strikes, figure into this story. Yeah, they do. And Galliard, um, he there were some hurt feelings in the black community that he didn't do enough for them. And I don't think he did anything in the hospital strike other than perhaps not take up for the hospital workers as much as he should. I think the police department was was pretty good. I think the problem the strikers had was largely with the National Guard being there. But a few months after that hospital strike, while feelings were still raw, he got into a tiff with the with the sanitation workers and uh, didn't negotiate with them well. And so he got this reputation as as being um, uncaring about the black community. And he was actually for his day a pretty progressive guy. You know, Palmer opened the first uh, integrated golf course in the state. Actually, it's the first public facility in the state that went. Really? Yeah. And, yes, for his day, he was considered progressive. And he's often been quoted that when there were problems, particularly with uh, concern about safety during the uh, early part of the civil rights, when there were marches, this is prior to the, the two strikes we're talking about, he would often comment the problem was not the African-American community. It was the white community that it was the potential for violence. And this is, of course, in the early 60s when cities are going up all across the country. And so he was, in his day, a very different Southern mayor. He certainly was not like the mayor of Birmingham and places like that. But by the time we get to the 70s, it's a different world. And the community was divided. The 1971 election was was really tough on him. All the black voters voted against him. The black precincts were all against Galliard. And he just barely gets reelected in the in the primary. And then in the general election, he has trouble. And so it's sort of assumed that he's not going to run again. So some of the power brokers, largely our legislative delegation in Charleston County, says, you know, we need a we need a consensus candidate. We need to bring black and white communities together. We don't need to have another election like that. We can't let Charleston get go down that road like Birmingham. And um, Joe was the pick. Let's talk about that group that, that he surrounds himself with. I, I mentioned Tom Tisdall. They're about, they're about six fellows. Robert Rosen, Tom Tisdall, Capers Barr, and Bill Regan. Barr, of course, was his law partner. Mm-hmm. But these others... That's an interesting kitchen cabinet. You refer to him as the Broad Street Ring. That was uh, that was what they referred to themselves as, and, and what a lot of people derisively called them in town. 
Well, it's 1975. He gets elected mayor for the first time. And very quickly, he makes the point from his inaugural address onward that he is going to work to bring all of Charleston together. How do folks in Charleston black and white react to that? Well, he uh, made a lot of people upset. Uh, I know one of the first things Joe did, he, he hung a picture of Martin Luther King in City Hall, and he said that, that it was a signal that all people were welcome now. And we had a letter to the editor one of the week saying, oh, this is Joe paying off his campaign debts. Well, was the News and Courier supportive? They were still pretty conservative in those days. They they were conservative. Uh, they they kept their mouths shut a lot, as I noticed. And um, Frank Gilbreth, who was my predecessor, was the columnist, and was she had a lot more pull than me. He was also the editor. He loved Joe and almost always took his side and defended him. They didn't get real deep into the editorials criticizing him for anything for a while. And I don't know if it was uh, they liked him so much on everything else and they looked the other way on how he was acting then. But um, Riley always had a way of, of, of making it seem very reasonable, and he was a very persuasive guy. I guess he, he probably talked him to death, which is what he <laughs> what he's, his, his standard M.O. Well, he could also write him to death. I mean, there's, there are one or two letters you can close in here, a couple of pages. I noticed in in the late 70s, he went on one trip with a conference of mayors to Taiwan, and he went on another trip to Europe with them. And both times when he when he came back, he wrote five-part series for the News and Courier's feature section. And I, I, you just never hear that today. And I asked him what that was about, and... Um, he said, I just wanted to keep my, you know, employers informed of what I was doing and what I was learning and what was going on. And I can remember coming in after reading those things and telling one of the editors, I, I said, shoot, he writes better than half the reporters we got on staff. Well, one of the things, the, the Taiwan visit reminds me of what you said, is that in one of those letters, he basically said he learned what real hospitality was in Taiwan, much more hospitable than... Charlestonians were to out of town visitors. Yes, that's been his that's been his sticking point for a long time. Um, and he was he was of course discouraged right then in the middle of this um, Charleston Place fight to build the hotel convention center downtown. It's pretty funny. He's known nationally right now as being this you know historic preservation guru. And when he started out, the local historical associations hated him and thought he was there to tear up the city. Well, the Charleston Place fight, that was a long struggle. And let's let's go into that because, yes, today Joe Wiley is known as historic preservationist, urban planner, the National Trust for Historic Preservation has given him their biggest award. But when the whole idea of Charleston Place came up, both the Preservation Society and Historic Charleston just went up in arms. I think what it really was was they were worried about development coming to downtown Charleston because I can't imagine, even in Charleston where we worship old buildings like deities, uh, I can't imagine anyone was really upset about these crumbling warehouses, a couple of which held strip clubs. Which the city eventually bought, right? Yes, they did. And, and, and Bill Regan said he had to go to them to check the city's because he was now chief of staff, yeah, he he had to go to, to the strip clubs to to check out the city's investment. Yeah, that was uh, that was one of the things that never got reported at the time. In fact, the newspapers never picked up on the fact that the city actually owned was the landlord of these strip clubs. And uh, Joe said that uh, he had a lot of staffers come in and want to say, "Do we need to go inspect that place?" <laughs> well, I think we need to set the geography for. I'm sure everybody now knows where. Charleston Place is, but we're talking about between King and Meeting Streets, Market Street, Market Street, and the back side is Legree. No, is it Haynes? Well, we got we it, we, 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 we got just, three of them. We got three out of the four, so it's right across from the City Market, which at this time is pretty crummy. Now, of course, it's a lot of a lot of chic restaurants and shops and boutiques and what have you. But 
when the idea for Charleston Place came along, that was a pretty crummy part of town. Yeah, it was. Um, well, there were three restaurants downtown, I think, which is hilarious now. But uh, Henry's and Perdita's are two of them. Yeah, and I think the other one you had to go into Francis Marion to eat. You couldn't even get an ice cream cone on the peninsula. But it was it was a it was a terrible area, and there's a story in there about uh, the mayor trying to to get these guys to move their building on King Street up as far north as George Street, which if you know downtown Charleston at all, George Street is where the College of Charleston's basketball arena is. It's across it's it's Ansonboro. It's one of the nicest neighborhoods in the city. And it was three blocks from where these guys had their um their group and um they said, we don't know if we can move that far north. It's pretty dangerous up there on the peninsula. Yeah, that was to, to move the uh, Washington Light Infantry. Yes, the Washington Light Infantry. Which then took over the old Masonic Hall up there. And, and it's still there. Yeah, it's a beautiful building. It's a beautiful building. The building they were in on King Street wasn't quite as nice. No, it was not. They made out okay. Yeah. So we've got this effort to revitalize downtown, and uh, let's Let's talk about what Joe's vision was. It wasn't just buildings. He was working on a lot of fronts, you know, Spoleto and and so forth. So let's these early years were kind of tumultuous, and some things like the Charleston Place went on for almost a decade before it was finished. But all of this has to do with his trying to, what is he really trying to, to tell his folks in his hometown? What have we got to do? We're, we're America's best-kept secret. There's that beautiful poster, all these old buildings. Mm-hmm. And uh, nobody knows about it. It uh, he he gripes. It didn't make it into the book, but he gripes that across the street from what eventually became Charleston Place, there was a gas station back then, and they had a billboard above the gas station that said, "If you like Charleston, you're going to love Savannah." <laughs> and he wanted that billboard down so bad, and he said that you know we have to we have to make this a great city for all of our residents. He was big into parks. Uh, he almost went too far taking the land that became Waterfront Park. That's a big controversy. And that took him years. I mean, he got the land in three years, but it took another decade to build the park. In fact, a lot of the successes that occurred while he was mayor seemed to have you know, been dogged with controversy. I mean, let's, let's just be honest. Charleston Place went to the Supreme Court because he was going to have the city condemn private property, and then it was going to be turned over to a developer, and the Supreme Court said, you can't do that. Yeah, his first his first step in, in uh, into the legal battles over Charleston Place uh, did not go well, and he lost. But what was interesting to me was that in their rebuff of him, when they ruled against him, they basically wrote out a roadmap of how he could do it if he wanted to. And as soon as... And as soon as they got this order or this ruling, they went to work on doing it that way. And what it was, and and I I thought that was fascinating because you did include that in your book, is that the city could condemn property for public use. And so what they did with the new plan for what would eventually become Charleston Place is that that would be a, a city parking garage totally owned by the city for public use. Although clearly, clients, people, or guests at the hotel could use it, but that, the money went to the city. Yeah, that was that was the that was the way around it, and uh, the preservationist didn't like that. They tried again in state court. They tried in federal court. They tried every way in the world to stop to stop this. But after that one stumble, I think he'd he'd gotten the better of them. And uh, well, but, but yes, and but one thing along the line, because I was teaching historic preservation at Carolina at the time, is the original proposal was a huge hulking structure. They compromised it first, took a couple of stories off of it, changed the facade to, and this is what the preservation National Trust talked about: the rhythm of the facade, the, the way the windows was set to match. The neighborhood that was that was changed, and when the final structure went through, they dropped another two or three stories, mm-hmm. so that it fit into really fit into the neighborhood. The original thing really was kind of outsized. Yeah, it was it was it was much larger. They cut down the whole convention center to a conference center. They did, and I know that the mayor thought that they were 
making concessions, but some of the people, the preservationists, they may have had a point about fitting it into the neighborhood and letting it blend in and all that. But most of the grief he was getting was from downtown neighborhood groups who didn't want anything. And they, you, you see the same sort of fight. Charleston Place is exactly the same fight we're having right now over cruise ships. They say that they want some sort of moderation, but some of them just don't want them there at all. Now, some people have good motives, but really this is this is still fighting for Charleston's soul, they think. Well, when you live downtown Charleston, and I know the mayor does, I've got friends downtown Charleston, they wake up, you know, there's strangers walking into their, through their garden. I mean, it's kind of hard to have a lot of, you know, much privacy or almost any privacy in, in some areas. Yeah, it's, it's like you're living in a museum display, largely. Yeah. Brian, we have to pause for a moment to let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Brian Hicks about his biography of Joe Riley called The Mayor, Joe Riley and the Rise of Charleston. Brian, before we leave the Charleston place, he started that, what, in his first term? In his first term, around 1976, he first started hinting at it. It really picked up steam in uh, 77, but it didn't open until the fall of 1986. Okay, that's what I was talking It was about a decade. Yeah. About a decade invol- involved in that. In fact, a, a lot of his projects and things that happened, whether you're talking about the Waterfront Park or you're talking about the Little Joe, the baseball stadium and the renovation of Gilliard Auditorium into that wonderful Symphony Hall Convention Center complex, he wasn't worried about something being, quote, finished on his watch. That, to me, is one of the interesting things. I mean, he's, he left office with one of his big projects still unfinished, and that is the International African American Museum. But the, the seed has been planted. Yes, and he is still actively involved in it. It's it's funny. I spoke recently at the Citadel, and uh, I've been given book talks around. This was the first one that had Joe Riley in attendance, and I think he's been kind of stepping back. Uh, I wish he'd come along more because I'd sell a lot more books, but <laughs> um, but I think he's worried about stepping on it, and, and and of course he did because when we were at the Citadel, we got you know. 25 questions and 24 of them were for him, which is which is fine. You know, I was rattling off some of these statistics like you were, like we were you were just talking about here. The Charleston place took 10 years. Waterfront Park was 12 years. He first proposed the South Carolina Aquarium in 1982. It didn't open until 2000. He first proposed the African American Museum in 2000. And while we're there in the Citadel, I turned to him and I said, "You probably worked on it today." And he said, "Yes, I did." <laughs> I mean, he's still out fundraising. He's still intimately involved in that project. Yeah. And since I've mentioned it, and I, I need to say with full disclosure that I'm a member of the board of trustees of the of that museum. They've already got the property, but the building and and what it is actually going to do is still very much under discussion. So the waterfront park, that the James, the continuing James Island story, <laughs> Angel Oak the baseball stadium, the tourism center there on, on Meeting Street in the old railroad depot. I mean, all of this took a lot of vision. And then in a community that is fiscally conservative, I think that's fair, but the partnerships that he managed to bring together to make all of this happen. And, and that's part of the story, Brian. He had an enormous willpower and perseverance some people would say stubbornness, but once he figured out what he wanted to do, it was very hard to get him off that path. Rarely stumbled, rarely stumbled. Always thought it out. Did I mean, he saved Spoleto. He's a 33-year-old kid. That in itself is a fascinating story because it's not a building. It's not, it's not a park. It's a cultural entity that folks at first thought was kind of cute and a frill, and then all of a sudden it becomes a big financial headache, management becomes a problem, and it almost goes away. Yeah, this, they, they were planning this Spoleto to start in 1976, but they couldn't. It was bumping up against too much bicentennial stuff. Everything was booked. There were things going on, and, and so they decided they were going to start Spoleto in May of 1977. And so in 
the summer of 76, members of the Spoleto board went to Spoleto, Italy, and they met with Giancarlo Minotti, and uh, they came back, and they thought he was crazy. They thought he was going to take money away from the festival in Charleston to finance the one in Italy, and they were ready to close up shop. And yes, his Italian festival was in, was running a deficit. Yes, and as you mentioned, he was not the Minotti was not the easiest person to get get along with. That's uh, that's what Joe Joe said when you wrote your first opera when you're 13. You're going to be a little high strung. <laughs> <laughs> and we're talking about I'm all in the night visitors. Yeah. So we're back here in '77. There's concern about finances. But they do get the first Spoleto off the ground, the first one in Charleston. Yeah, not without great personnel changes because the board, after that trip to Italy, wanted to shut it down. And Joe says that, uh, you know, he didn't know what else to do. So he, uh, as a parliamentarian, as a legislator, he said, I, I moved to table that motion. And by the end of it, he um, he won a narrow victory and ended up as chairman of the Spoleto board briefly. Yeah, have I think he won by one or two votes, yeah. and those who had wanted to shut it down resigned from the board. Yes. And he goes home and tells his wife, Charlotte, that he's now chairman of the board of Spoleto Festival USA. Which he, which he very quickly handed off to Ted Stern. Who was then the president of the College of Charleston. Yes. The first couple of years, it didn't quite make the national splash that people had hoped. Most of the, the hotels didn't fill up as much and what have you. But then new management comes in after Ted. Not that Ted wasn't doing it right, but new management comes in, and it just balloons into what it has become today, a true international festival. Yeah, it uh, it took a little while to catch on, but now it is uh, over the years. I mean, they were still struggling 10 years in, but um, eventually, eventually it has taken off and is now on pretty solid ground. And it's, uh, you know, it's a testament. It, it wouldn't be there without Riley. And, of course, that has had an incredible impact on the cultural life, not just of Charleston, but certainly of all, all of South Carolina. I think about the Charleston that I knew in the 1960s as a young graduate student going to the Historical Society. There wasn't anything downtown. You talk about trying to find a place to eat. There was a cafeteria on Broad Street that had a C rating from the... <laughs> from DHEC. <laughs> Everybody on Broad Street ate there. I mean, it was, it was the only place you could, if you wanted to save time, you know, go from the historical society and go around the corner to get a, to get a bite to eat. At that time, one of my good friends was a wonderful Charleston character, uh, Anna Wells Rutledge, uh, who lived on High Battery and worked in the historical society research there. And she used to talk about the sad Charleston game of how many blocks a woman could walk down King Street without having somebody try to snatch her purse. One of the things facing Charleston when Joe Raleigh became mayor was not just the fact that it was America's best kept secret. Crime really was a problem. People, businesses were moving out of downtown. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it was almost epidemic levels. It was it was really bad, and, and a lot of people don't remember this about his early days. They didn't remember this young progressive, this Democrat, this liberal, but he was always pretty moderate conservative on crime, and um, he set up the first police substations in the city. He set up one on King Street. He set up one in a public housing development, and uh, it really started to, you know, try to work on crime. It eventually worked, but it didn't come easy. He had a good his first police chief, Mr. Conroy. He inherited right from. Yes, he did. Uh, Mr. Conroy had been there from from Palmer Galliard, and Riley thought the world of Conroy. Uh, they were sailing buddies. Yes, uh, and then uh, Mr. Conroy committed suicide. Yes, I don't know why, but this gave Joe the chance to hire his own police chief. Probably one of the most unusual hires in Charleston history, and Reuben Greenberg. Yeah, it was a it was a very uh, it was a very strange hire. I can remember uh, Joe told me when I was asking him about this was that um, he really wanted a black police chief, but he didn't want to say we're only hiring a black police chief. But he had his friends. He had Capers and some of the other guys. Uh, one of Palmer Gallard's sons was on on council at the time, Foster. And um, 
he had them vetting these candidates, and they brought him Greenberg's resume, and Greenberg's standing there, and he's a professor at Berkeley, and he's got his coat, raincoat, slung over his shoulder, and Joe said it looked like an ad in a catalog for menswear, <laughs> and I did not want that. I wanted a cop, but they just kept hearing more and more good things about uh, Greenberg, and so they brought him in, and they loved him. He proved pretty controversial. He caused he caused uh, the mayor a lot of headaches over the years, but he got results. People loved him, and uh, for a, a long time, his his popularity rivaled the mayor's. Well, yes, and he brought in the mounted police, if I remember correctly. Yes, he did. In some ways, what Charleston had had, they turned around in terms of crime and or the lack of crime downtown, the improvement of of the living climate. Charleston became a model. My hometown, Mobile, was having trouble. They created a, a police, the locals derived to call it the cavalry, but, you know, <laughs> uh, a mounted police force, particularly for use in crowd situations, parades and that kind of thing. And, in fact, Greenberg and a team from Charleston went down to Mobile and helped them organize it. So he had a reputation that it far exceeded the boundaries of, of, of Charleston. But, you know, I think when we're talking about not just Joe's successes, some of the crises he had to deal with as mayor not only had an impact on him, but also had an impact on the state and certainly were further wide. And I think probably need to start with Hugo, Hurricane Hugo. Now, Hugo was the first major hurricane that Charleston had seen in decades. He didn't really know what he was doing. And of course, back then you didn't have the Weather Channel and the internet with all these different forecasting models. It was a it was a pretty it was pretty much a no brainer. You had this pressure system over Bermuda coming down, and then you had something coming up from the Gulf, and there was really only one path for the storm to take. So, the mayor was convinced it was coming to Charleston before the state ever issued a watch or a warning. Well, I think it's interesting that they thought, yeah, this is going to be the likely path. So Joe then had his staff contact cities on the Gulf Coast that had been through hurricanes. What do you do? What's the best thing to do? And it seemed like most of them came back and said, tell people to get the hell out of there as quickly as they can. There's always the danger that you might be screaming wolf, but once it's coming in so fast, you might not have that chance. And so it was interesting that, that Joe and the chair of county council both began to ask people to leave before anything came out of Columbia. Yeah, that was part of the advice that they'd gotten from people they talked to on the Mississippi Gulf Coast and Texas and who'd who'd gone through Camille, Mm -hmm. basically. And there are a lot of people in Charleston that I've talked to who said, well, I wasn't going to leave, but I saw Joe on TV telling me to, so we decided to. Well, he also made his announcements in front of City Hall while they were putting plywood over the windows. Now, that was an incredible TV statement. I mean, right there. You know, they're boarding up City Hall. That was uh, completely planned. He knew that if he had the workers out there boarding up the windows at that time, the cameras would turn from him to that in a minute, anything for some action shots. And it was a very, you know, it was it was a better statement than anything he could say. Tens of thousands did evacuate the low country. That's part of the story. So he was successful in that. And it was interesting when he got his staff together just before the last 24, 48 hours, working with Chief Greenberg, his staff and the police, the emergency responders, were told to send their families out of town. It was almost mandatory because he didn't want anybody who had to deal with the situation to be worried about their wife or their child or their mother or what have you. So when it came time to respond, he told people, we've got to figure out how we're going to do this to rebuild Charleston. They already figured it was going to be bad. And mm-hmm. during the night in September, it surely did get bad. Yeah, it was um, the backside of Hugo particularly and the storm surge. But he uh, said after the, after the first part went through, he walked outside when they were having that stadium effect mm-hmm. and uh, the eyes overhead. And they thought they'd weathered it pretty well. And then the second half comes and just... uh, They had about 45 minutes in the eye. Yeah. And he'd wandered outside just for a few minutes, but they couldn't see anything. The power was out. And uh, 
everything looked to be standing. But there's a great story about he had, over the plywood, he had a hole cut out so he could see out the front door of City Hall. And he saw a roof rolling down Broad Street. And he goes, oh, somebody's lost the roof. And then about that time, rain starts pouring into City Hall. It was their roof. Yeah, and, and they eventually had to, because water was rising, the top floors were declared unsafe, and they, so they were they were huddled together on, I guess it would be the first floor, not the basement floor, the first floor, mm-hmm. and trying to decide, do they save the art? They leave those incredibly valuable paintings hanging on the wall, take them out. Smart thing was they left them on the wall because they were vertical. Yeah. But then after the backside of the storm's gone through and they walk out, they really begin to see what has happened to the, the holy city. Yeah, that that morning at at daybreak, Joe had a had a city truck, and him, he, he and Howard Chapman, who who worked with him in various capacities in his administration, they got out and they drove around and looked. There were boats in the street, and the water hadn't quite gotten to City Hall, but you could tell that most of most of everything south of Broad had been underwater, including his own house. Including his own house, but he didn't check on that for a day or so. And he just immediately started efforts to rebuild the city. It was funny. There was a dual-headed monster there. Was Joe Riley and Fritz Hollins were pretty much running everything, trying to rebuild the city. And the president snubbed. So did the vice president. Mm-hmm. Um, Although he stayed at Charleston Place, he only visited North Charleston. <laughs> they basically tried to play politics with the recovery. Yeah, they did. And I don't know. Who started that, if if that was them being petty, or it could have had something to do with the fact that uh, they didn't move fast enough and uh, Fritz called them bureaucratic jackasses right off the bat. Well, of course, that didn't win him any friends with FEMA or with the administration, either in Columbia or Washington. But Joe already had a national reputation within the organization of mayors and that kind of thing. But this really gave him a a very public persona. Some people probably might have thought that was a potential political threat. They're beginning after, right after Hugo, they start talking about, well, maybe he should run for governor. Everyone assumed he was going to run for governor in 1990. Everybody just assumed he was going to challenge Carol Campbell. He didn't. He wouldn't leave Charleston. And, and that's the thing. And that's, that is what I see is the, is this underlying tragedy that runs through the book ever since he was a young boy Joe Riley had grown up around governors he wanted to be governor he went into the legislature with the idea that one day he could grow into being governor and in 1990 they said you got to come and campaign against Carol Campbell we'll support you and he wouldn't do it because he he felt his duty was to clean up Charleston and ongoing things and then when he does finally decide to run, that's the heart of this book, if you ask me, this 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 man who always wanted to be governor. And then when he, he's got his shot, he he doesn't really take it. He could have won that race if he'd tried, but he was too busy with, with Hugo cleanup and uh, the Navy base closure. And uh, he was too busy doing his job to run for his next one, which was admirable. He, he did get into a runoff with uh, Nick Theodore. But he lost the runoff uh, narrowly. But he did. But he did lose it. But you're right, and, and you are pretty frank in quoting some folks here that his friends, who were very powerful within the Democratic Party, was you know basically telling, "Get yourself out of Charleston, and you know you got to come up state and campaign." He did some during the runoff, but he he didn't do that in the first stage of the primary. He pretty much stayed in Charleston. I think that um, first of all. The mayor is very, very conscientious, and he's always, never taken that job for granted. Never felt like anyone owed him anything. He felt like he owed everyone something. And uh, he couldn't do a bad job if he tried. And there were all these things going on with that job, and he just he told himself, and first of all, he's like a lot of politicians. He doesn't like to raise money. He doesn't like to go around and glad hand county party chairman and stuff like that he loves talking to people but he doesn't really like to play that game that much and so some of his friends thought he was making excuses and i think what was really going on here was this internal struggle in his heart and he'd always wanted to be governor but he knew that mayor 
of Charleston was where he belonged. And I think that uh, he that race made him figure it out. But, of course, he's too uh, stubborn and competitive to, to give it up. So he fought it in the runoff. And to this day, his sons will tell you, if we'd gotten one more vote in every precinct in the state, we would have won. <laughs> well, he didn't. So he stayed in Charleston, and he ran again for re-election, and he ran again a total of 10 terms. Yeah, he did. What's what's interesting about that is you've, you've got 10 terms, 10 four-year terms. He's in office 40 years. Out of those 10 terms, seven of those times he was challenged by one or more candidates. And if you take those seven contested elections and you add up his average win total, he got uh, 66 point something percent. So in every race where he was contested for mayor, he, he, he took an average of two out of three votes. Yeah. In the last year of Joe's term, he may have faced the greatest challenge of all, or the, I would say the city faced the greatest challenge, and that was the murders at Mother Emanuel Church. Yeah, that was, uh, a, was and still is a very hard thing for the mayor. It um, it really affected him. Well, uh, and of course the the events after that, the way the city responded. I mean, it was it was a national. The governor was involved. The president was involved. But the image that the city of Charleston presented to the rest of the country, and just watching the events unfold, but particularly the last two days with the memorial service and then the funeral and so forth. Unforgettable. Unforgettable. Yeah, it was. And um, and Charleston, really, I, I wrote a column that weekend that uh, Charleston has shown the world what a true community looks like. And when I was finishing up the book, I was actually still working on the book when, when the Emanuel shooting happened. I was writing, you know, the last chapters of the book, and when I wrote about Emanuel, which was, uh, which was not an easy thing to write about— um, it struck me that the reason Charleston reacted the way it did was because it had 40 years of Joe Riley's leadership. This was this was his city, and the city was responding in the way that he would want it to respond. And I thought about that. I, I actually typed that in, and I looked at it, and I thought that's that's a that's a pretty big statement. And I walked away from it, and um, a few days later, I was at a party for the. 10th anniversary of the Ravenel Bridge, and I had three city councilmen and one county councilman say the exact same thing that I had just written. They said, uh, the city responded the way it did because of Joe. And so I felt pretty confident in, in my assessment after that, but uh, it, it really was a, a great, it was a Riley-like response. Mm-hmm. Brian, you have written, as, as I said, as we started off, a biography of Joe, but the subtitle is Joe Riley and the Rise of Charleston. And we're really talking about a Charleston that I first knew as an adult in the 1960s versus the Charleston of the day, from America's best kept secret to, depending on what poll, America's friendliest city, number one tourist attraction. Now it's, it's uh, being talked about as the whole city as a world heritage site. The place is, is booming. It's alive. And uh, that has been an amazing transformation of a sleepy southern town into a cultural mecca. And you've chronicled it very, very nicely. Thank you very much. As Pat Conrad noted in his, his introduction, Mr. Hicks writes a good book. So any last words, Brian, before we sign off? No, I was uh, I was glad to do the glad to do the book and I, I knew the mayor for a um, for a long time before I started on this and um, was really happy to have the chance to work with him this closely and uh, was pleased that he was open and talked about everything and because uh, he's always been a private sort of guy mm-hmm. and uh, I was afraid that he wouldn't open up enough for this type of biography which is mostly a professional biography but also talks about his personal life and how it impacts 
various things he does. Well, we couldn't get into that, but that that's a very interesting part of the story that how he and Charlotte basically tried to keep their children out of the limelight. They were not, you know, they, they tried to keep as normal a family life as they possibly could, given the circumstances. And they did, they did a very good job. Okay. And, all right, Brian, I hate to tell you, but we've got to sign off this time. Okay. <laughs> Alfred, Alfred's given me the wind-up signal. This is the third time around, and I think that's going to be the charm. So Brian Hicks, columnist for the Post and Courier, and author of The Mayor, Joe Riley, and The Rise of Charleston. Thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. Well, thank you for having me. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. The story of the transformation of Charleston is an interesting one, and that transformation coincides with the 40 years that Joe Riley was its mayor. The changes didn't always come easy, as we found out. There were controversies. Not everybody agreed with the mayor, but the transformation of the city did occur. And as Brian Hicks pointed out, on average, despite competition, two out of three Charleston voters cast their ballots for Joe Riley to re-elect him mayor for 10 terms. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.